They have vowed not to eat or drink anything until they have killed him. That's our theme verse from Acts chapter 23, verse 21 for this week's Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Senior Pastor Perry Duggar continues our series called Church Extended, and this week's episode is Protection. Our Brookwood Global Ministry Partners stand on the truth of the Bible, often in the face of fierce opposition. For this week's spiritual practice, visit our website, brookwoodchurch.org slash partners, and pray for our missionaries. If you want to watch a video of this week's message, listen to worship, or search through our message archives, visit brookwoodchurch.org/watch or download the Brookwood Church app. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with the Church Extended series. We pray this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. And now here's our senior pastor, Perry Ducker. Whatever you may be facing, that song reminds us so well, we're not alone. We are not alone. Thank you, we continue to see how the church expanded, led by Paul. Today's title refers to the protection that was given to Paul and by extension to us as we pursue God's plan. You can um, look at the outline. You can pick them up at the doors as you've seen. Some of you still use them electronically, so I encourage you in that. Today's theme verse is part of Acts chapter 23, which is the chapter I'll focus on today, and at verse 21. And it says, They have vowed not to eat or drink anything until they have killed him. Speaking of Paul. Now, as Acts chapter 23 opens, Paul again faces Jewish opposition. We've already seen it numerous times. And just as a little background, because... Obviously, I'm not covering all of these passages on Sunday just for time. So I do encourage you to read along. But in Acts chapter 21, Roman soldiers arrested Paul as he was being savagely beaten by a Jewish mob at the temple grounds. And that arrest likely saved his life. Now, in Acts 22... The Roman commander of those soldiers that arrested him, whose name was Claudius Lysias, allowed Paul to address this angry crowd. But when Paul said that God had sent him to the Gentiles, the Jews started rioting again. Now this commander wanted to know, what's causing this? Why are y'all so angry with this man? And so he took Paul and had him whipped or scourged to try to extract a confession to Paul. But right before, now we don't know if they'd already started the beating or it was right before he was struck, he objected and he said, I'm a Roman citizen. And so Roman citizens could not be punished without trial and conviction. So the beating stopped. And it left the commander very frustrated because he was still confused. He didn't know, what do you have against this man? You can find that in chapter 22, verses 24 to 29. You see, as a Roman citizen, Paul had some rights. He had the right to know the charges that were against him. And the commander, you see, needed to discover what this complaint was because he also needed to file it in his paperwork, which would be sent to Rome. So he called together the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. And we see this at the last verse of Acts chapter 22, the preceding chapter. 
and verse 30. The next day, the commander ordered the leading priest into session with the Jewish high council. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about. So he released Paul to have him stand before them. Now, as we reflect on Paul's experience of accusation, of attack, I think that we have the opportunity to learn how we can conduct ourselves when we face opposition for our faith, specifically when we are sharing our faith. He gives us a model for facing opposition. Just a couple of principles I want to pull out of this passage and apply to us today. And the first thing is when you're facing opposition, admit mistakes. Chapter 23, verse 1. Gazing intently at the high council, the Sanhedrin, there were 70, some say 71, that, that the one being the high priest. So there were either 70 or 71 of these leaders who made up the, the Sanhedrin. Now, what does it mean? He gazed intently at the high council. Say it louder. He glared at them. I think he did glare at them. But what did that mean? Why was he glaring at them? He questioned their authority. That's good. The good insight. He wasn't intimidated by them. At the very least. Or he had poor eyesight. I mean, some of you that are my age, we do a little glaring. And there's no offense. We just can't read what's on the wall. And he said, brothers, this would have not been received well by this court. For this man, this Jew, to be calling them brothers, a Jew who would become a Christian, worse yet. But remember, he had been a Pharisee. And so he likely knew many of them. He may have studied with them. He may have plotted with them to oppose Christianity. And he said, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience. That's questionable, isn't it? He means by that that he was always motivated by a desire to please God. And that statement, see, would put them on the defensive, because he's really implying that perhaps they, not he, have been opposing God. But the statement can't mean that all of Paul's actions had been right, because he killed Christians. And, and in a, several places in his writings, he expressed his regret that he was the greatest of sinners, that he was the least of believers. But he was saying that he obeyed what he thought was right and from God at the time, even though it was wrong. You see, Paul thought he was serving God in putting these Christians to death. He thought the Christians were destructive of the Jewish faith. But I'm not sure. I can't say that I completely understand what he means in this statement. 
but at the very least, it's to push his accusers back. But let me just mention as an aside, a person's conscience operates based on what that person believes is right and true. When, biblically speaking, it may be wrong and false, it might be corrupt and sinful. A criminal may see as a far worse offense to tell on someone who had committed a crime than to murder someone. And that's his sense of right and wrong. And have you ever wondered when someone you knew was lying to you and you're thinking, how could this person possibly be lying straight in my face and showing no remorse and no hesitation? Anybody ever experienced that? Because you see, they may have adopted a set of standards that they believe is true. And so they are free to lie. It's only by exposure to the Bible and through sensitivity to the Spirit's influence that we can rely on our consciences to guide us. I mean, how many of us have heard this? Let your conscience be your guide. How many of us have heard that? Don't do that. (laughs) Our consciences can be a dangerous thing. And so following your conscience, you know, follow your gut. Do what you think is right. No. Don't start there unless you know that your conscience is being led by God's Word and that you're being guided by God's Spirit, then you can have a sense of right and wrong in which step to take. Verse 2, instantly Ananias the high priest. Now Ananias was a cruel, evil, corrupt, pro-Roman Jew. And he served about 11 or 11, 12 years beginning in AD 47. In fact, this man was thought of so poorly by the Jews when they had an uproar and an attack against the Romans at one time. One of the first people they killed was him. The Jews killed him first because they so had such distaste for him. So Ananias the high priest commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. But Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. He actually said literally, you whitewashed wall. But it does mean a hypocrite because you've covered over and hidden what's true. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that because he'd been convicted of no crime, hadn't even been charged with a crime. But now let's ask a question. Was Paul right in speaking to this high priest like this? Don't think that because 
a, a behavior of Paul's is described that it therefore is prescribed to us. Sometimes behaviors are shown that are wrong. And so is this an instance where Paul is actually disobedient or was this the right thing to do? Was it, was rebuking this priest for violating the law appropriate? Or was it a sinful, impulsive act of anger about being slapped? Which one do you think? Yeah, Hugh, I'm waiting. <laughs> They're waiting. <laughs> you think, but was it sinful or was it right? It was right. I don't know what that says about Roland. Here's the point, though. At James 1.20 says that human anger doesn't carry out the righteousness of God. But Ephesians 4 says be angry, but don't sin. So there is righteous anger, but I'm not sure how many of us achieve that. I don't know about y'all. Now, y'all, y'all are, this is really a wonderful crowd. And this is a, this is really a, ser- a sincere statement. But for me, I think my anger is usually connected a whole lot more to me being offended than God being offended. What about you? Verse 4. Those standing near Paul said to him, Do you dare insult God's high priest? But look at Paul's response. I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest. Paul replied, For the scriptures say you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Exodus 22. 28. And there's several New Testament passages that say something very similar to that. So what we see here is Paul acknowledged his disobedience of the Scripture. He even quoted it. But quoting it made him in the wrong, right? And he's admitting that he failed to respect God's appointed man though it was a man whose character was questionable. He failed to respect the office that the man filled, even if the man wasn't worthy of respect. Now, what's he saying? I didn't know he was the high priest. It it might have meant that Ananias wasn't wearing the appropriate robes. It certainly meant he wasn't sitting in the official chair because this was kind of an informal gathering. And we see that the Roman commander was in their presence so it obviously wasn't in the the normal spot the official spot where they ruled but it could be he couldn't see now you don't have to accept my explanation of that search it out but for me I think losing his eyesight was his thorn in the flesh but you don't have to accept that from me But he said in Galatians, and you would have plucked out your eyes for me 
And he said, I write this with my own hand, but look how large my letters are. I think he had a vision problem. But you decide. Paul admitted that he was wrong for disrespecting the high priest. Romans 13 gives us some instruction about officials. But the interesting part here for us, I think, is that he didn't attempt to excuse his disrespect by pointing out the lack of this man's character. He saw his sin as against God. And in relation to God's holiness, not this high priest evil. How often do we do that? When sharing our faith, you see, I think we should always admit our own sin and failings. Because excusing, defending, justifying, or blaming others for our wrong actions causes people then to question our honesty, our integrity, and therefore our transformation. Are we honest about our sins and failings with others? Especially unbelievers. It's interesting, isn't it, that how we feel like we must defend ourselves against unbelievers. They know they do wrong. They know we do wrong sometimes, maybe as a mistake, sometimes on purpose. And it's far worse for us to deny it than it is to just admit it. And, and then by doing so, we uphold the very standard we say we believe. But when we deny it, what we do is we cause those people to be able to question our credibility, don't we? And our integrity. When facing opposition, assert God's truth. Verse 6. Paul realized that some of the members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So he shouted, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, as were my ancestors, and I am on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. Now Paul is being wise here because he's appealing to those who he believes he believes will agree with him. He identified with the members of the Sanhedrin that would agree with him in hope that they would support him. And it, it divided the council. Verse 7 says, This divided the council, the Pharisees, against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection or angels or spirits. Luke wrote, Luke wrote this in for people that that didn't understand that. The Jews that read this would understand it. But the Pharisees believe in all of these. The Sadducees accepted only the Pentateuch as authoritative. And so they said resurrection didn't appear in the, in the first, Pentateuch's first five books. And so they rejected any concept of resurrection or afterlife. They also rejected Spiritual beings, angels, demons, any of that. They, they, were, they tended to be the upper class. They were wealthier than the Pharisees who were more among the common people. 
And the Sadducees actually held more of the power in the country. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in the authority of the Scripture. Not only the first five books, but all the other writings, the histories, the law, the prophets. They embraced and believed the resurrection of the dead and the afterlife. So you see, a Pharisee's beliefs actually closely coincided with the beliefs of Christians. In fact, the Bible mentions several Pharisees who became Christians. Who can name one? Who'd you say? Paul. Look, that was a good answer. Paul, but I told you that one. Who else? Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, John 3, 1. And there were another, a number of others that were not named. So it wasn't a completely fair question I asked you. But no Sadducees. You see, a Pharisee could actually affirm the Messiahship of Jesus as a completion of what he already believed. Sadducees didn't believe any of that stuff. And so we see no record of any of them coming to faith in the Scripture. Verse 9. So there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of the religious law who were Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him, they shouted. Perhaps a spirit or an angel, which the Sadducees didn't believe in, spoke to him. As this conflict grew more violent, the commander who was standing there was afraid that they would tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress, the fortress of Antonia, which you can still see part of it, but it's below street level now. We saw that when we were in Israel a few years ago. But the commander's still frustrated because he hasn't learned what? What they're complaining against Paul for. Why are they beating this guy up? But again, I think Paul provides us a model for facing opposition. And I think it's this. Always speak truthfully and biblically. Keep asserting the Bible as your standard of truth. And I'm not talking about just, just teaching about certain principles. I'm saying the whole of the world. What are God's moral standards? Not what are cultural standards, what are God's standards? And we keep asserting that. This is, this is my standard for what's right and what's wrong. Even to people who don't accept it. Now again, I'm not saying be aggressive. I, I, I'm not saying be arrogant. Understand they don't accept it. But see, they don't have to accept it for you to, to use it. You believe it. So you say, this is why I have the, the opinion I do. Amen. And all of your opinions and my opinions ought to conform to biblical standards, right? We don't need to be adding extra rules to what the Scripture says. But we, but we need to be sure that we line up. And this is all issues about faith. All issues about 
uh, morality, and we cite the Scripture as the reason we believe what we do. I believe that people will sooner accept your behavior and beliefs if they are based on biblical teaching. Here's the, here's the caveat, the warning. As long as you consistently follow the Bible in other areas of your life. See, don't use the Bible in a fight when this person will clearly know you're avoiding all these others. You're just picking and choosing. So do we live and act biblically? Which gives us credibility to share the gospel. You know, I've been in discussions, many discussions like this through the years. And with people that have a very different opinion than me. But I would say, here's what I believe, not because it's my opinion or my preference. It's God's opinion given to us through his word. And people can accept that from you. They, don't, they may not agree with it. But if you start picking and choosing, then they'll just discount all of it. You know, if you say, oh, no, this is not morally right, but then they know you're cheating on your income taxes, you see, you, you lose the credibility to use God's word. Because when you use it, you have to use it in how many places? All of them. All of them. When facing opposition, and, and when we live and act biblically, it gives us credibility to share the gospel and to anticipate God's protection. Verse 11. That night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul, just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. You know, the Lord appeared to Paul several times where he was unsure which way he should go, what was about to happen to him. Acts 18, it happens. Acts 22, it happens. And it happens here. But this statement gave Paul great hope because it assured him he was not going to die in Jerusalem, that he would be able to travel to Rome to continue his ministry. And the promise of ministry in Rome would sustain him through many, many trials. Does the promise of heaven sustain you? When suffering, and there's, you know, there's many of us today that are suffering in many different ways, physically, emotionally. And it might not get better. But we know a place awaits us. I don't know that we'll ever get what we really want in this earth. You know, we're, we're promised suffering, aren't we? It's hard, you know. We've been praying for my little grandson. 
And um, boy, fasting, praying, sometimes shouting. You know, I pray on my knees, I pray standing up, I pray soft, I pray loud, I shout. My neighbors probably just think I've lost my mind. <laughs> but our little boy is a beautiful, beautiful little boy with the full image of God that he has some very serious physical problems. And he requires even more care than we even imagined. So we haven't gotten what we might get or hope to get. But we still have God in this. And we still have the Spirit to hold us up, especially our, our dear daughter and son-in-law, just for the Spirit to hold us hold, hold them up boy because as that song that Heather sang there's someone with you in the fire you're still in the fire but you're not there alone that should comfort us shouldn't it but it doesn't remove all of it. Boy, I, you know, I've just realized that I often think if I pray, then that means God fixes this. Anybody else ever pray like that? So answer to prayer means it changes and it stops. And I get to go back to what I'd rather live and it'd be normal. I don't think that's true. But it's not an easy awareness to come to. Anybody identify with what I'm saying? Amen. So does the promise of heaven sustain us through trials, through suffering on earth? Verse 12, the next morning a group of Jews got together and bound themselves together with an oath not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. See, they knew that the Romans wouldn't do it because they, they hadn't charged Paul with anything worthy of capital punishment. And they certainly hadn't convicted him of anything. So they're going to do it themselves. But God's providence intervened. Verse 16. But Paul's nephew, his sister's son heard of their plan, and went to the fortress and told Paul. Now, we don't know whether this nephew is a believer or the sister. Paul tells us in another place in, the, in his writings that he basically got banished from the family. So, it's, it's, we don't know what this young man's motivation was other than to protect his uncle. And the reason he could go and talk to Paul is Paul was essentially in protective custody. Now, that meant he was chained to a Roman soldier. And in fact, um, chapter 21 says he had two chains. So he probably had two Roman soldiers chained to him. But he wasn't locked into a dungeon or a cell. And people could come and see him, including this nephew. Paul called for one of the Roman officers and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something, 
important to tell him. So Paul's nephew told the commander, some Jews are going to ask you to bring Paul before the high council tomorrow, pretending they want to get some more information, but don't do it. There are more than 40 men hiding along the way, ready to ambush him. Wonder why so many? Because they knew they would have to fight Roman soldiers. They were willing to die to kill Paul. They have vowed not to eat or drink anything until they have killed him. And they are ready now, just waiting for your consent. Don't tell anyone you told me this. The commander warned the young man. So God providentially caused Paul's nephew to learn about the plot and report it. See, we we use the word God's sovereignty, but God's sovereignty is not really about his action. It's really about his role and his position as ruler over all. So sovereign is his ability to rule, his right to rule. Providence is the way he rules when he actually works through circumstances in this world and in our individual lives. It's the way God works out his sovereign will in our world and in us individually. Sometimes we think, oh, there's no way that that anything positive can come out of this. But God doesn't need Christians to do his will. God can work through whomever he wants So that situation that you think right now is hopeless and there's no other Christian to help, there's no one that appears interested, that doesn't limit God. But we pray and we fast and we ask God to intervene by his providence. Verse 23, then the commander called two of his officers and ordered get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea, the seat of the Roman government, which was 65 miles away from Jerusalem. At 9 o'clock tonight, also take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted troops. Provide horses for Paul to ride and get him safely to Governor Felix. And he was the Roman commander's superior. Now, I'm not going to read all of this, but verses 25 through 33 tells us about a letter that Commander Lysias wrote to the governor and told him about Um, Paul being attacked, he arrested Paul, he found no reason for Paul to be submitted to capital punishment. I mean, it was a a, um, debate about Jewish law, and so he shouldn't suffer imprisonment or death. And then he says, okay, so I have imprisoned him, I'm sending him to you, and I'm going to tell everybody that opposes him to come and make their argument before you. And the governor agreed. Verse 35, I will hear your case myself when your accusers arrive, the governor told him. Then the governor ordered him kept in prison in Herod's headquarters. See, the providence of God preserved the life of Paul so Paul could carry out his assignment. But did the providence of God keep Paul from any pain? No. 
we have to be careful, don't we, that we assume God's intervention means we don't suffer. I think the Scripture promises, promises us that in this world we have trouble, but Jesus overcomes the world. Our, our all-powerful God is able to protect us, and He can use whatever and whomever He chooses to accomplish His plan for our lives and His purpose in this world. And I do believe that if we're pursuing God's plans, I believe he will protect and preserve our lives until we accomplish his purpose. But that doesn't mean he'll make our lives trouble-free. Warren Wiersbe wrote that the safest place in all the world is in the will of God. Are you, am I, in the will of God right now? I think you can't die until you complete what he's calling you to do. Now that's me, that's my theology. You don't have to hold on to that. But are you discovering and are you pursuing God's plan for your life? I think if you are, you can count on his providential protection. Care volunteers will come to the front. They're here to pray for you, to talk to you, to anoint you with oil for healing. Father, help us to desire knowing your purpose more than our own. Help us to pursue your plan rather than our own ambitions. But Lord, may you point out where you want us to be, make it plain. And more, Lord, may you encourage us, help us, and protect us so that we can pursue what you want us to accomplish through our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you for coming. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. Our memory verse is Hebrews chapter 13, verse six. So we can say in confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? At Brookwood, we wanna help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. Please email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on the Connections team. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.